So Money, episode 287, Elise Glink. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey everyone, welcome back to another fresh episode of So Money. I'm your host, Farnish Tarabi. Thanks for joining me. I have money and real estate expert, Elise Glink, on the show today. She is an award-winning, nationally syndicated columnist, TV reporter, and radio talk show host, frequently appearing on CNBC, CNN, PBS, among several other major news organizations. She also hosts the Think Glink podcast, where she answers questions about real estate, mortgages, credit, among other topics. Elise is the author of the column Real Estate Matters, which runs in over 85 newspapers nationwide, including the Washington Post, the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, among others. She writes the column with husband Sam Tamkin, a real estate attorney with over 25 years of experience to address real estate, personal finance, and consumer issues. Elise has also written a dozen books. She is the creator of of The Intentional Investor, uh, a new nine-part video series and nine-part ebook series that gives you a clear roadmap to help you become wildly successful in real estate. Now, in our conversation with Elise, we discover, one, how to turn your expertise into a successful business. You know, it's not enough to just have knowledge and passion. You need to know how to execute so that you can have financial success. Elise offers her top tips. The financial habit she and her husband practice with their sons. It's helped her boys save thousands of dollars for their future. And finally, her go-to zero strategy that honestly, honestly, everyone should do right after listening to this podcast. I'm doing it. It's going to dramatically change your budget for the better, I think. Here is Elise Glink. Elise Glink, welcome to So Money. Have your ears been burning? Because I've been talking about you on this podcast here and there. Is a lot of my listeners are dying to learn more about real estate, and you are my go-to expert guru. Happy, honored to have you on the show finally. Thanks for being here. It's such a pleasure, and it's so exciting to see how well this project is going for you. Very cool. <laughs> it's a project. <laughs> yeah, like, like everything in life. Right, right. right. No, I, it's been fun. The show is being is doing very well. It's growing, um, and it's thanks to amazing guests like you who uh, just bring tremendous value to listeners every single day. So thank you again for being here. I, I want to ask you, Elise, you know, I've known you for several years. We've crossed paths. We've been colleagues at various places. Um, I, I interview you a lot of times when I need to know more about money and real estate as it is. Let's talk about the real estate aspect of your portfolio of offerings. You know, you, you, you are a financial expert. You are syndicated columnist TV. You are an award-winning TV reporter, radio talk show host, thinklink.com and elisklink.com, your websites. I want to know though, real estate, 
how did you get started in becoming the real estate go-to person? Because I have to tell you one thing. I don't know if I ever told you this. When I started dating my husband, he had a shelf full of books about real estate because that's what he does before he does anything. He gets really educated about the topic, whether it's buying an engagement ring, he read a million books, buying a house, read a million books. Your books were on his shelf. And when I walked into his apartment the first day, I said, I know her. (laughs) And I felt really cool. How did you amass so much knowledge and expertise in real estate? Well, it started out with just a personal interest and passion in it. And I think that's really when it comes to money, when it comes to really anything in your life, if it doesn't start with passion, for me, it it doesn't do much at all. So when I was thinking about real estate, when I was a kid, I, I used to love going over to people's houses. But the cool part was not just playing with my friend, it was seeing their house. And so they would give me tours of their houses. And a lot of my friends lived in century old brownstones in the Gold Coast of Chicago, which is where I'm from. And seeing these old homes and how they'd been renovated, seeing the high rises with beautiful views in downtown Chicago, it just really sparked a great love of mine for how people live in their homes. And so early on, I figured this out. And then after my dad died very suddenly at age 18, which is a very, very sad story, he died when he was 49 years old, um, very suddenly at the side of a road in my arms uh, one Saturday morning. My mother had to make a living, and so she decided to uh, go into real estate. And so she took the license, and she became kind of an instant success. I mean, she was selling $20, $25 million in property a year, and that was when it wasn't like you sold one house for $25 million. (laughs) We all know today there are a lot of million-dollar homes sold, and back then there weren't. So she got into it, and then I um, met my husband, who was a real estate attorney, and we got married, so I had it there. And then I took the the state of Illinois real estate class and the license because my mother really wanted me to go into business with her, which I was never going to do. But I decided once I passed that uh, to then start writing about real estate, which is what I did for the Chicago Tribune. So I didn't realize this, that your journey into real estate really started from your father's passing away and uh, what a personal endeavor. I mean, uh, you have an emotional attachment to this, it sounds. I do. I absolutely do. And in my, even with my dad, you know, my dad was one of the first lawyers to really help develop the field of municipal law and municipalities are the villages and the cities and the towns in which we live. He worked for the side of the municipality and he was constantly negotiating with developers who in the 60s and 70s, we're taking huge chunks of land around villages and towns and cities, right, like Chicago, and they were developing them. And my dad pushed for things like having the developer do givebacks for schools and having the developers do uh, setbacks so that housing developments wouldn't sit right up against the road. And in a town called Naperville, which had 20,000, it was a sleepy corn town like 30, 40, 50 years ago. The developers came in, and today there's like 150, 180,000 people in Naperville. My father fought so that signage would be smaller and that the setbacks would be bigger and that developers would have to do more with open land and parks. And it was very cutting edge. And all around the country, people picked up on that work. And unfortunately, as I said earlier, it got cut short when he died at age 49. But those lessons of negotiation and how we live and use land have stayed with me. Real estate has 
really transformed since not just when you started, but I mean, just look at, you know, our, our, our country's history of real estate. There weren't any million dollar homes back in the day. Now it seems like there are too many. The, the market seems to me to be pretty frothy again, especially with rates hanging at, you know, record low, uh, record low rates. That's going to change. Where do you see real estate going in the next year as far as affordability and as far as an investment. You know, I know we're not supposed to think of our homes as investments, but um, I guess my question is, how are, are the valuations too high at this point? Well, I think it depends on where you live. So you live in New York or in Brooklyn and and that play, those places, um, Miami, San Francisco, Los Angeles, some parts of downtown Chicago are, you're talking about prices that are on par with some of the most expensive cities in the world. I think Chicago is like the ninth most expensive city in the world. Um, New York, and I think it's Hong Kong tied for number one. So when you look at property prices there, you think to yourself, or London, how could home prices even be this high? And what does this mean? How could they keep going up? And so you have to look at what's driving this. And People really are coming to the United States and they're buying houses at all pricing points right now from other places in order to protect cash investments. We see it in my own hometown. Um, I live in the North Shore of Chicago. And in these communities, you see a lot of people from Russia and Asia coming to the Midwest with cash in their pockets. They're buying three and four million dollar houses with cash and they're basically looking to park cash. Now, where they got that kind of cash from, I don't know. I don't ask them, but you're seeing this as a, as a real driver of change. And we've been seeing it in Miami where money from Latin America has flowed in for a long time and New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, you're seeing from all over the world money flow in order to protect itself. So real estate is being used very much as a hedge against inflation and a hedge against, I don't know if it's corruption or political intrigue or who knows, maybe the collapse of the finance markets again. I, you're absolutely right. In fact, there was a cover story, in New York Magazine, that looked at the number of foreign-owned properties in America. Thirty, sorry, in New York City, thirty percent of the high-rise apartments that are newly built, a lot of them are um, offshore investment uh, holdings. You know, they're they're just people. They don't even live there. They're vacant, which is kind yep. of spooky. Yes, um, for the average. American who, and let's also talk about millennials because largely my audience consists of the 18 to 35 crowd. Should real estate be part of their financial planning? I mean, is to say that it's still a part of the American dream, is that a, uh, is that far-fetched or is that something that is still achievable with today's, you know, young generation? Well, this is the number one question that everybody in the real estate industry is asking is, where are all of the millennials? And I think we're going to, first of all, I want to just talk for a minute about millennials because my vision of this is that there's really two groups. There are the older millennials who are like, say, 23 or 24 to 35. And then there's this younger group that's more of the Gen Z or into, God, are we going into Gen AA? Who knows what we're doing next? But <laughs> let's ask Faith Popcorn what she's calling it. But oh, yeah. This, this, there's a real dichotomy of what's going on there. And, but the people who are sort of 25 to 35, they should have really already been showing up 
as home buyers, and they're not, and not in the quantity that they should be. And the real estate industry is completely freaked out by this because so many people are depending on a new round of buyers coming in uh, to make that industry kind of kick it up again. And it's, it's just not happening. So where do I see real estate going? Well, the next year, and really nobody can forecast too far down the path, but the next year we're not going to see much of anything. And that's because we're going into a presidential election year. And traditionally, at least for the ones that I've seen over the last 25 years, oh, sorry, that was my coffee cup. Every time you go into a presidential election year, real estate slows down. And it slows down because there's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. People don't know what to expect. What kind of policies is the new president going to bring to the table? What kind of tax situations are we going to see? What kind of debt and deficit issues are we going to face? And how is all of that going to affect the stock market, my job, interest rates, the wealth that I feel, the wealth I feel I have, the wealth I actually have, all of those things come to play when somebody's going to make a major long-term investment like buying a house. Millennials are not very long-term. In fact, one of the most interesting things about millennials is that even when it comes to cars, cars are like commodities for a lot of millennials. They're not buying and, and cars and keeping on to them, you know, holding on to them for 10 or 12 years. They want new technology every two years in their car, which is now what car manufacturers are building in. And so they're all leasing cars. And this is just completely changing the face of the car industry. And now real estate agents are afraid of the same thing happening in real estate. They're completely unattached. I have a millennial brother. He's 24. I'm on the very, I'm like at the, at the high end. I'm 35. So I, I like to say that I'm a millennial, although you're right that there's, a, there's two different zeitgeists depending on where you are on the spectrum. If you were, if you're 24 or 35 and, I see his friends, you know, they're, they're changing jobs. They've already changed jobs three or four times having been out of school just a couple of years. Um, they, you're absolutely right. It'll be interesting to see which establishments are going to change the fastest. There's going to be some resistance. You know, there's a lot of resistance to the millennial mindset and the millennial lifestyle from the establishment. But I think they're going to have to find ways to accommodate. It'll be interesting. Elise, what is your financial philosophy? Let's transition now to some so money questions. I ask this of all of my guests. Uh, given your background, I'm really, really interested to hear what is your overarching money philosophy if you have one? Well, let me start with what the motto of my whole career has been, which is to help you not you particularly furnished because you already know the answers, but to help everybody make smarter decisions with their money. It's on my website. It's what I do day in and day out, whether it's real estate or personal finance um, or with companies. We're now helping them solve some of these issues. It's very, very exciting to me. And then my overarching philosophy is that you can do 95% of every single thing you need to do with your money on your own. You're occasionally going to need a real estate agent. You're occasionally going to need a tax person. You're occasionally going to need a lawyer. I, I don't even think you necessarily need an investment advisor. But you need to understand and feel that you have the knowledge and power to do 95% of what you need to do with your money. It's, it's all about you and the decisions you make. I'm just trying to help people empower themselves. 
I love that. Now you made me think about something personal, which is, do I really need a real estate agent when I'm selling my property? What's your take on for sale by owner? I just feel that at this point, I, when I go to sell my property, it's going to be, a, I'm renovating, I'm going to, I'm adding value to the home. It's going to be a big ticket home. I can, I'm, ha- I'm going to have to work with a lawyer. I know that that's going to be a cost and that's fine. I like working with my real estate attorney, but I've just had some you know, I've just been underwhelmed by some of the real estate agents I've worked with in selling property in New York. They seem to just come and collect a paycheck. They call it in and, you know, they come to me with glowing reviews and they're recommended. But at the end of the day, I feel like, hmm, could I have done this? And maybe it won't, wouldn't have been so smooth, but I would have saved a lot of money. What's your take on that as a, as a sidebar? <laughs> well, here's a little sidebar. I think that if you or anybody who's thinking about being a for sale by owner, and I've done it. Um, so I, I totally understand how the attraction of money and saving that money is important, but you have to first decide, are you willing to be the, do the jobs of the agent and the jobs of the seller? Cause they're two separate jobs, two separate mindsets, and you have to work really, really hard at both to make it work. So that's your first question. Second question is, New York is a very fragmented market. Most of the others have kind of big multiple listing services that you could tap into for a fee. But New York is very fragmented. So are you willing to put in the money that it's going to take you to advertise the property, get it noticed internationally? Are you going to do a an auction model where you're going to focus a lot of attention on the property right at once? Do you have somebody who's a neighbor next door who just wants to buy it or his friend wants to buy it? There's a lot of those kinds of things that happen around the country that make a lot of sense. So if somebody wants to do those jobs, has an in, has an ability to sell it, the property is highly valued for where it is and what it is, you should go ahead and try to be a FISBO. And then after three or four weeks when it hasn't sold, you should think about hiring somebody who's a pro. And by pro, it could be you could go to auction.com or you could go to Hubzoo. You could list it on Zillow. You could conduct your own auction. You could hire a discount broker. There's so many different kinds of options these days that didn't exist even 10 years ago that will also help you save money, maybe not as much as you would have saved, but at least something that you should consider in addition to a full service agent. I like that. Thanks for those options. I mean, maybe if I find a buyer on my own and then present it to an agent and I'll just say, can you help me with this now? Um, Maybe it's for less commission because you didn't have to put out ads. You didn't have to really um, put in the time to find a a buyer. That's, those are good options. And by the way, Fizbo, I think that's Cam's clown character on Modern Family. Um, (laughs) I don't know if that's a coincidence. Maybe that's a sign that I shouldn't do it on my own. Anyway, thanks for that sidebar. I I love this podcast because I get to educate myself along the way as well. Now, Um, money memories, Elise, growing up, your mom was obviously super successful in selling real estate. She was very busy doing so. I mean, 20, $25 million in sales a year. That's a lot of houses back then. What was your number one experience when it came to money growing up as a young, as a young girl that today you reflect upon with a lot of um, nostalgia because it really taught you so much about money as an adult, you know, a pivotal money memory growing up as a kid. I think the money memory that I have is that my family always thought I was the expensive child. (laughs) It's sort of funny because it wasn't (laughs) that I spent money, but I needed glasses. I needed braces. 
Um, I had some health issues when I was young, so I was constantly going to the doctor. So there was this thing like, you're the expensive child and my sisters are the cheap children. But then I went to the University of Illinois, which was such a bargain back then. I mean, you want to talk about a cheap education. What a great education for the money. I think that all in, it was like five grand a year. And my sisters went to out-of-state public schools. One sister went to the University of Michigan. One sister went to Tufts, which at the time was the like the most expensive school in the country. And so I went from being the most expensive child to the cheap child. <laughs> after my dad had died, I went right to college about four weeks after he died. And so, and it actually the University of Illinois was his school. And it was really profound to be there and to understand that. The other thing that I remember very strongly as a money memory that I really has played a big part in my life is that we always had to work to make money. You know, we, we had side jobs and we would uh, raise money for UNICEF and I had a babysit. And then in the summers we would get, as we got older, we got retail store jobs because that was what was available at the time. And I remember I spent my, wanted to spend my junior year abroad. And my mother said, well, you know, I don't really have the money to send you on, you know, a really expensive semester abroad. What else, what else do you got? And I said, well, there's this program for a whole year. That's the same cost as the University of Illinois tuition. And so she said, okay, so I did that. I went away for a whole year for the exact price of paying University of Illinois tuition. And I had worked in the summer. I made $3,000 working in retail because we were paid on commission. And so it almost covered um, the expenses of being away for the year. And I felt, I remember feeling really proud of that. And then while I was away, I kept a little book of every single cent I ever spent the entire year I was away. And I still have that little book and I pull it out at speeches and I show it to people and I can tell them. And it's not only a great reminder of how if you write things down, you can be so careful about what you spend and be able to track it. But it also is now that my memory is failing because I'm so old uh, a great reminder of all the fun things I did while I was away. So those are some of my money touchstones. Well, one of the touchstones that I picked up on right now is that you made $3,000 selling retail in a summer. Lise, you are a saleswoman first and foremost. You are a business woman. Okay. Real estate expertise aside, journalism experience aside, you could sell a pen to anybody. And I think that is what ultimately is making you successful. If, is it not? I mean, you could be successful at anything. It's if you put your mind to it, you really know how to turn, uh, an expertise into a business. You know, you run your own business. A lot of people out there have similar, if not more knowledge about real estate than you do, but you are the one who's actually been able to share it with the masses in a way that is lucrative and exciting. And you package it right. You think very savvy. So can you maybe brag a little bit more about that aspect of your acumen? Cause really that's what I'm learning from listening to you is that, um, how can listeners take the expertise that they have and be self-employed one or two tips to be a really savvy businesswoman, businessman with the skill set that you have so that you can be self-employed and really, um, have a business that, that you can scale. So it's interesting. I, I actually, this is my third business that I'm in right now. Um, I actually sold the third business I started and made quite a lot of money, plenty to pay for college tuition and all the rest. And now I'm about to start a fourth company. 
Um, the big company that I have today has very little to do with real estate and a whole lot to do with personal finance. It's called ThinkLink Media, and it's basically a digital content agency. And what we do is we come in and we do communication strategy and we build content platforms and digital platforms and offline things for marketing and social media. In fact, I do a marketing podcast called Monday Morning Marketing with a friend of mine who's a former CMO of a law firm. But to your point, I think I've always treated whatever I do as a business and not as sort of a fun thing to do in my spare time. I was very focused about being able to pay my bills, right? That was a big driver for me, that visa bill at the end of the month, which wasn't that high, but it was in my mind that I wanted to always pay my bills on time. And so I was out there scrounging for work, convincing people that I could do it, asking them to give me a chance. And I I often tell people that the most underrated thing that you can do is simply ask for help or a tryout. And you can offer to do it for free. A lot of times people say, well, I'm not going to work for free. I have done so much work in my life for free. And all of it, almost all of it has paid off in unexpected, interesting, and exponential ways for me as I've built a business. And so ThinkLink Media, and you can find it online, thinklinkmedia.com. I have 10 full-time employees. Uh, We work with 200 freelancers, and we work for some of the biggest companies in the country and do really interesting, cutting-edge marketing, social work for them. And I find it to be enormously fascinating, while at the same time I write about personal finance for everybody else. So stick with it and uh, keep your head down. Elise, I would love to now hear about a failure because <laughs> we just talked about so much success. I want to know how you have failed financially, one experience, and what did you learn? Wow. It's, it's kind of a tough one since I make my living being smart about money, but... hmm. Well, you didn't just wake up smart, or maybe you did, but... <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's a good point. I, did I wake up smart? I, I hope I was always a little smart, but I, I didn't always know about money. So I am, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm in my early 50s now, and twenty. my husband and I have been married for 26 years, so we met 28 years ago. And 28 years ago, or 27 years ago, I got a credit card And I was really unaware. It's not really a failing as much as I just wasn't aware of what damage not paying on time could do. I don't think anybody knew because we didn't really have uh, uh, FICO scores back then. But you could pay late. And one day, um, I just got busy. I was doing all the bills for the household. Sam is a lawyer, and he was busy. And so I said, well, I would do the bills. And so I'd been doing the bills, and then I got busy. I was writing a book. And I just forgot to pay the bills one, one month. And Sam's like, I thought you paid this. And I said, oh, I just forgot. And, he's, and he was like, you can't forget. Because <laughs> you know, Sam is actually even smarter than me about money. And so it was, it was such a moment where it was like, oh, I really have to. And I wasn't writing about money and real estate at this point. I was doing freelance writing for the Tribune and about a dozen other publications. I was writing travel stories. I was writing business stories. I, d- I really hadn't focused in yet on personal finance. But this lesson of, hey, you really need to pay your bills on time. That's super important. Um, that, was, that was a real eye-opener for me. And it's something that I've carried with me all the way through. The other thing I'll, I'll share with you that it's not really a money failing, but it was one of those moments where I thought, I'm at a critical juncture of my life. And this is a turning point. 
So here I was, a freelance writer. It wasn't like I was making very much money. I think my first year out, I made $17,000 a year. My mother was freaked out how I was going to pay the bills when I did pay them on time. And then Sam, who was working for a big-time law firm, decided that he wanted to go out on his own. And I said, he said, you know what? I'm never going to make the kind of money that big law firm people are going to make. You know, partners make a million dollars a year or more. I'm never going to make that but I really want to have a family life. I want to spend my life with you and the kids that we have someday. I'm willing to make that trade-off. Are you willing to make that trade-off? And of course, you know, the, the I said, sure, of course I, you know, let's do that. And suddenly we were two self-employed people with completely uncertain streams of income with a mortgage and our whole lives changed. And I developed a philosophy that I have used with thousands and thousands of people as I've helped them fix their finances, which is what I call my go-to-zero strategy, where we literally, Sam and I, took every single expense that we spent every year, every day, every month, every week, whatever, we took it off the table and we started at ground zero and we said, well, we need to pay our mortgage. That's the first thing we're going to pay every month. We need to buy food, but we don't need to eat out. This is the second thing we're going to do. And we walked through all of our expenses from ground zero and we literally rebuilt our budget based on the very uncertain income that two freelance writers were, were bringing in. Plus, we then had to pay for health insurance. And that was a pivotal money moment for me in my life. Changed everything. I am so going to do that. I'm going to ground zero <laughs> um, in the new year or maybe even a little bit before the new year. You know, this year's just been a real big spending year for us. We've been renovating and <clears throat> lots of um, ancillary costs with uh, with renovation and not uh, the least of which is leaving your home and subletting in Manhattan or Brooklyn. Good luck. Um, it's been a real like sobering experience, financially sobering experience. So um yeah, we got to do that. Go to the ground, go to zero strategy. I love it. Um, Elise, what about a so money moment? You, you, you know, those were um, not so much failures, but like you said, you were uh, un- just the unknowns out there. You know, you got to, you got to live to learn. Um, but what would you say is a pivotal money moment for you that led to a lot of success? A so money moment. I think you have to know when to get out of a business. So I was in a, the third company I started was um, a, a project for Humana and we were building a portal for Medicare and it became, I put together the team. I was the co-founder and co-publisher of it. Uh, it's called the Medicare News Group. It was absolutely amazing. And we built this project up and my co my co-partner at the time was like, I think I want to run this on my own. And I said, I, th- I figured I had put almost everything I could have into getting it launched. And I love launching projects. Like I said, I'm starting another business now. I just love it. I find it to be really creative and really engaging. And so I sold her my interest. And that money, it was so significant that it allowed me to never have to worry about how I was going to pay for college for my two boys. Um, I never had to worry about, um, it's not like I made tens of millions of dollars, but it was, you know, for somebody like me, who's a journalist by training and running a successful business, it was enough money to stick in the bank at once to sort of say, I don't have to think about college expenses anymore for my kids, um, even if they want to go to grad school. And that was a really significant win. And what was a really telling moment for me was how much stress, financial stress I'd been under without even realizing it. And, and this took that away. 
it just made it go away. And so it was a big number, but the, the real win for me was how connected financial stress is to these goals, these financial goals we set for ourselves in life and how alleviating that stress just makes everything in life a little bit sweeter. What a gift to be able to afford college for your sons and grad school if they if they choose to go that path. I think that you're right, especially when it comes to affording college. This is a huge, huge problem in our country. I mean, I think it was Pew that just came out with a study uh, recently that t- looked at student loans in this country. And never before in our history has there been a generation saddled with so much debt so early on in life. And that could also be why they're not buying homes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think, definitely yeah. A big- um, wonderful. Elise, almost wrapped here, but I can't let you go without finding out what is your number one financial habit? Sounds like you already have some good habits in place. Going to zero, your go-to zero strategy when when life needs it. Um, but it, from a more consistent standpoint, what's something that you do every week, every day that helps with your financial planning? I think Sam and I check in about money all the time. You know, he knows he has been tracking our money on uh, QuickBooks and Quicken for. I don't know, the entire time we've been together, basically. So we've got this incredible record of what we spend, what we spend it on. He knows to the penny where all the money is in the family. Um, I think that that's been very helpful. And then when our kids uh, turned 18, actually even younger, we've always talked to our kids about our money and what we've earned. And they've respected the privacy that we have as a family around that. But we started very early with money lessons. I think uh, one of the most rewarding things is we did this as all growing up for them. And I think it's such a great idea for other people. We told them that if you put money in the bank, we'll double it. This is your rate of return. And we explained Mm -hmm. what that was. You take money out to buy junk and we're going to take our share back. And so our kids um, basically never took any money out of the bank. They just piled money in, money in, money in. And when our older son turned 18, we pulled out the different accounts that All of that money had added up. And when I tell you it was well into the double digits, he was amazed. It's enough to start a business. It's enough to have a down payment on a small rental property. Uh, It would be more than enough to pay for a year or two of graduate school, depending on what he did, although we have that money set aside. You know, this is money that he actually invested. And we said, look, you're 18. You can take this and go buy a car. You can take this and, and, you know, blow it at gambling. But if you take this money out, then we're going to take our share back. And he said, oh, no. He said, I'm going to only use this for the future. And I know that he will. And they've learned those lessons. So I think the habit of talking to our kids early about money, about our money, about their money, and about the consequences of money has paid off and both of them are super smart about it. Yeah. I always say if you can teach your kids delaying gratification and self-restraint, you're more than halfway through uh, teaching them the success principles of life. (laughs) It's so true. Uh, Elise, round robin time. We're going to do some fill in the blanks. I start a sentence, Uh you finish it. Here we go. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say $100 million, the first thing I would do is give away most of it. We're going to get to where in a second, but first (laughs) one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better or both is help in the house. 
Oh yeah, for sure. My biggest splurge that I spend a lot of money on, but I wouldn't have it any other way is. Um, gifts for my sons and my husband. The one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is. Uh, how to make even more of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like we had a similar childhood in that regard. Uh, when I donate, here we go. When I donate, I like to give to blank because. So, uh, right now I'm giving to, uh, UNICEF in addition to giving money, I'm giving my, uh, time as the co-chair of the Chicago humanitarian awards, which by the time this airs will have already taken place on October 23rd. And I give to UNICEF because they're doing amazing work with women and children around the world, eradicating diseases. Um, after the Nepal earthquake, they've been so incredible about resources on the ground, um, money and water and food and helping keep kids out of the sex trade around the world. Um, I just, I'm so impressed with the leadership and how they really do such an incredible job for so many people who don't have a voice. So I give money and time to them. Wonderful. And last but not least, I'm Elise Glink, and I'm so money because... I care more about your money than probably you do. (laughs) I want that to change. Yes, because no one really cares more about your money than you, or no one really should. But we like you, and thank you for that, Elise. And I'm so happy to finally get the chance to uh, show you off on this podcast. Thanks for visiting, and hope to have you back soon. Anytime. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Elise, her website, thinklink.com and thinklinkstore.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Glink. All this info at somoneypodcast.com along with the transcript and comments. And of course, there you can ask me a question. Click on Ask Farnoosh. Every Friday, I answer your questions. Thanks for tuning in. Hope your day is so money. Money.